The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org. There's something about ministry that connects one to the hunter-gatherer cultures that came before herding and settled agriculture even, much less industrialization, or the post-industrial tech and service society that we now live in. Because wherever I go, I find myself gathering stories that shed a little light on the spiritual and moral challenges that we face even when the stories are not easy ones to hear. For example, as an historian, I have been advising recently one of the oldest Unitarian congregations in America, King's Chapel in Boston, gathered in 1686, advising them about the history of their enmeshment with slavery. Because sitting on Boston's uh, historic Freedom Trail, our co-religionists there now realize that before the revolution, some of their members who built that church were among the largest slave owners in British America. They owned sugar plantations in Barbados as well, where the life expectancy of a new African slave was less than a decade. They brought some of their favored servants to Boston and have been able to name some 280 enslaved people who were connected with the church. But as I researched the history of slavery in colonial New England, I discovered this story that precedes even theirs. A decade before King's Chapel was formed, New England colonial settlers fought what they called King Philip's War against the indigenous peoples of the region. They won, of course, and were brutal about it. They burned whole settlements full of women, children, and elders, and captured warriors and then tried to sell them as slaves in Barbados, where their plantation managers, having heard how fiercely the indigenous braves had fought for survival, refused to buy them. And so a Boston ship with enslaved Native Americans arrived in 1678 in Tangier, Morocco, and auctioned them there. I discovered this story visiting Tangier in June. It's often said that the original sin of the United States was African-American slavery, but actually it was preceded and accompanied by Native American genocide. While I was in Tangier, no one among my fellow travelers really wanted much to hear this story. Maybe you don't want to either, but I feel compelled to tell such things as part of the truth that we must reckon with. I'm reminded of the writer Helen Hunt Jackson, a Boston-born Unitarian, 
who about the time that this church building was being built, and she died here in San Francisco, wrote a book called A Century of Dishonor about broken treaties between the United States and the Native peoples. She sent a copy to every member of Congress, along with a quotation from Ben Franklin printed in red on the cover. Look upon your hands. They are stained with the blood of your relations. Her memorial service was in this room. In my forthcoming book, A History of This Congregation, a religious center with a civic circumference, Unitarians in San Francisco since 1850, I also tell the story of an early member, the Unitarian writer Bret Hart, who joined the church in 1860. He'd come to the West Coast and started as a young journalist up in Humboldt County near the Oregon border. And one fall day when his boss, the editor, was away in Sacramento, he heard about an outrage. While the men of the local Miwok villages were away hunting and gathering for their annual ritual Thanksgiving, preparing for winter, local white settlers who coveted their land fell upon the villages and killed the women, children, and elders and slaughtered some three to 500 people in six different places. Hart interviewed the few survivors and then printed in the newspaper what they told him. He wrote an editorial saying, this is what Christian civilization does and means. Driven out of town, he took refuge here in the city, found this congregation and its minister, Thomas Starr King, whom one African-American historian of the state has called quote, perhaps the only real white anti-racist then in California. But frankly, neither of them felt that they could do much in the face of the white supremacist myth of manifest destiny and the sweeping domination of the continent by white settlers claiming the land. God gave us this land. That's the title of a book I recently read about what historians now call the first American Civil War, which is what they taught us in school to call the American Revolution and its follow-up. When so-called tax-objecting patriots in New England joined with Southern slave owners, such as Washington and Jefferson, who were mobilized by the threat of Governor Densmore of Virginia to free all of their slaves if the plantation owners rebelled and joined the New Englanders. All Eastern colonialists were also motivated by the British alliance with the Native Americans inland, who were part of the fur trade, and barred settlements on the rich lands beyond the Appalachian Mountains. But don't get me going about all of that. More recently, Gwen and I traveled to Alaska, where we spent a week 
among people who know that their state has the highest proportion now of U.S. citizens who are descendants of the indigenous population, 22%, more than Hawaii, more than Oklahoma, where native-born son Woody Guthrie, for all of his progressive and anti-fascist values, once famously sang, this land is your land, this land is my land, from California to the Gulf Stream waters. This land was made for you and me. Which, as I read those lyrics, simply raises for me now the question attributed to the Lone Ranger's mythical sidekick, Tonto. What you mean we, white man? While Gwen and I were in Alaska, we had lunch with our friend Matt Clayman, now a state representative who's running for the state senate. Matt grew up in the Unitarian congregation I once led in Dallas, Texas. His father, a child psychiatrist, having been key to my call to serve that church 41 years ago. Last week, you heard from this pulpit from my most recent successor in Dallas, Reverend Dan Cantor, about how women in that church funded the case called Roe v. Wade, fighting for women's rights and reproductive choice. Well, I had long wanted to return to Alaska because I'd only been there once 25 years ago when I was president of the denomination and when all nine tiny UU congregations in that vast state sent people to meet with me at the one church with a minister in Anchorage. Matt Clayman and his wife, Lisa, the general counsel for one of the native corporations of Alaska, gave me hospitality in their home. Matt was then the treasurer of the Anchorage UUs, and on Sunday morning, he stunned me by pulling out a printed copy of a sermon I had preached in Dallas while he was back home from college, trying to figure out what to do with his life. That sermon, called The Responsible Life, was not one that I even remembered. But its basic message, I guess, was simple. Responsibility begins in the possibility, in the ability to respond, even to those things that are hard to look at. Matt lifted up that sermon and then said, this is why I went to law school and became an environmental and human rights attorney. And I just about melted more thoroughly and quickly than any receding glacier. You see, we Unitarians, like Emerson, who once gave four lectures from this very pulpit, by the way, have often mourned the unmerited displacement and death of indigenous peoples. Emerson organized an early petition against the removal of the Cherokee from the southeast through the Trail of Tears to Oklahoma. Later in the 1870s, when the government decided to quell accusations by religious groups of abusing the indigenous, they divvied up all of the reservations in 
the lower 48, to various denominations. The Unitarians got the Utes. Young Reverend Jabez Trask, fresh out of Harvard Divinity School, was sent as superintendent to the Utes. Wisely, he decided to simply observe them without disturbing their traditional life as hunters and gatherers and not try to make them into farmers, but rather learn from them. Eventually, of course, white merchants demanded that he be removed so that they could proceed with the sale of firearms and plows and firewater. He was taken out for, as he put it, doing my job too well. Once we use also had a role in running an Indian school in Montana, among other enmeshments, but the sins of were not so much of cruelty or commission as they were of omission, of failing to fight the myths of manifest destiny and white supremacy. What can we say? I go back to my Catholic boyhood and want to go mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. Great spirit, I stand upon this land which some of my ancestors stole, that some of my other ancestors, with your help, fled to as refugees. Without them having come here as a place of safety, I would not now be alive. What shall I now say about the use of this precious land which I never earned? In other words, whose land is this? As I sailed to Alaska, I read both a history of that vast territory where that seemed to be the recurring theme. What, we bought it for $7.2 million from the Russians? Thought of it as Seward's Folly or Icebox. But then sent a young Unitarian naturalist named William Healy Dahl, age 20, who wrote about its natural wonders and resources which have proven to be worth billions more. It's an interesting place to think about land. The only part of these United States where the land was actually, in part, given back to the native peoples through 12 regional corporations. By far, it's the largest state in our union, 17% of all the territory and with the highest percentage, as I've said, the citizens. 61% of the land in Alaska still belongs to all of us through the federal government as national parks and monuments, forests and preserves, supporting tourism like my own recent visit to Glacier Bay and Denali and beyond. Only 1% of the land in Alaska is privately owned. The state distributed much of the remainder to those native corporations. 
That made possible, of course, by the oil riches discovered around Prudhoe Bay on the North Slope toward the Arctic Ocean. Toward the very end of our time in Alaska, we were in Fairbanks, through which the Alaska pipeline carries oil south to the Port of Valdez, where the shipwreck of the Exxon Valdez famously soiled Prince William Sound in 1989. We went out on a river cruise and visited the reconstruction of a native Athabascan village, and then stopped to learn how early miners panned for gold. Somehow, I still felt morally and intellectually restless, so I sought out a bookstore in Fairbanks, and that's where I found a dog-eared volume called God Gave Us This Country. You see, when the founders of our republic fought not only against the British imperialists on the, West Coast, on the East Coast, but also against Native Americans like Tecumseh, who had allied himself with the British all the way through the First and Second American Wars of Independence, the War of 1812, so-called. It may not surprise you to learn that indigenous people, like the colonialists, also claimed that Maneto, or the Great Spirit, had given them the vast, often empty forests, mountains, and prairies as their own. So the question remains, whose land is this? As a theologian, I can only frame this response. Perhaps the Great Spirit meant for us to share it. The indigenous knew how to do that, and we have forgotten. Perhaps we do it better in Alaska. But here on this peninsula where we live, the indigenous would never have allowed the poor, the aged, the demented to go without food or housing or care. Today, we assume the white settler notion that we own or rent our little pieces of land. And one of the deepest ironies is that among our own politicians, those who posture as most progressive are often most in debt to neighborhood associations that forbid the creation of more affordable housing. So we are all enmeshed with displacement still. Indigenous people found colonialist ideas about land ownership both abhorrent and incomprehensible. Perhaps we would do well to understand their concept of the village being a place of sharing. In the meantime, as stewards now of land stolen from those who went before us, perhaps we should follow what Daniel suggested and do what we can to see that more homes are built here, even if it brings change, for only with change 
can sharing and justice prevail. These things I hunted and gathered to apply to our lives today. Amen. I'm not someone you would expect to have been repeatedly threatened with eviction. I've worked in software since I graduated college. But about a year after college, the landlord in my first ever apartment started a series of unreasonable threats. We were easy tenants who were paying the sky-high market rate, but he was trying to sell the building and so any time he had an opportunity to be difficult, he took it. There were two separate times when he seemed serious about trying to evict us on nonsense grounds. We had the resources to fight him, but it would have been slow, expensive, extremely stressful, and there always was the risk that his lawyer would find some way to prove that he was technically in the right. These moments of uncertainty, when all we could do was wait and see if he would actually go forth with an eviction or back down, were the absolute most stressful days of my life. And while I've had a pretty easy life, I have counseled multiple people who were actively considering suicide, among other stressful moments. There's something about having your home taken from you, or even the threat, that is deeply destabilizing and distressing. And yet, I know that displacement has always happened. Europeans did it when they settled here. Urban planners did it when they built the interstate highway system through neighborhoods of color and the invisible hand of the market does it in San Francisco today. When I interrogate the anxiety that I felt sitting on my couch in that charming Victorian apartment in the mission after work, feeling stressed and helpless and stuck, I can now see that I feared falling into a predicament that many experience in this city. What if I have to leave my apartment with no notice? Where will I go? Where will I put my stuff? Will I be able to find another place? How could I find anywhere decent if I had to disclose an eviction on my rental application? What kind of landlord would take me? Would my next apartment be habitable? And I was lucky. I knew I wouldn't end up on the streets. I could get a hotel if I needed or stay on a friend's couch. Eventually, I would figure something out. But we need not walk far in this city to see those who were not so lucky. Most people living on the streets in San Francisco had a home in the city until they didn't. They live on San Francisco's streets 
because San Francisco is their home even though they can no longer afford an apartment here. And fundamentally, this is because there aren't enough homes in San Francisco. People want to live here, and without more homes being built, that means that prices go up and those with the least resources get pushed out. There are layers of red tape and appeals and height restrictions that have left us building far less even than smaller cities like Seattle. Instead, too much of California's new housing is being built inland, where people drive hours to work here, where people need air conditioning, and increasingly, where people are at risk of wildfires. That's not green, and we can do better. Let's build now throughout the Bay, in every city and every neighborhood. And some of that is going to have to be built by for-profit developers and rented or sold on the open market, just like my home was built and probably most of yours as well. Let's make room for all kinds of people to live a good life in this fine city.